Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fireside Chat. Pastor Rob McCoy is out on the road tearing it up with Charlie Kirk. And uh, I'm here with my friend Dave Glinky and our special guest, Gabriel Nadalis, who was a former Antifa member and activist. Not a member. There's not really membership. But he was active in that. And we're going to be looking at that. And he wrote a book. Check this out uh, as it pops up. You can pick it up on Amazon. Behind the Black Mask, My Time as an Antifa Activist by Gabriel Nadalis. So uh, just to give you a little update. Uh, of where we have been. This is our second edition. If you didn't catch the first half, which is really the story of Gabriel's life in Mexico City, coming to the country and then getting influenced and really embracing this anti-American sentiment. Um, And the second half, we're going to talk about it today, is uh, what changed and why he's willing to sit here and talk to a couple of middle-aged white guys (laughs) and, and not be have a black mask and wanting to uh, shout at us or uh, cancel our message in dialogue back and forth. But before we get to uh, his story, Dave's got a little update for us. Yeah, we just we just wanted to remind you. Uh, last Sunday, uh, two days ago now, Kirk Cameron did a great message on Sunday. He did. And if uh, if you didn't have a chance to watch that, go back to Sunday and and take it in. It was incredible. It will but, fill you with hope. Great yes, message, Kirk. Yes, yes. And, um, but he's done an incredible amount of work to put on this event that's going to be at Jack Hibbs Church on Saturday. And if you could throw up the slide with the amazing guests that uh, uh, Kirk has put together. Um, here, there you go. Look at that lineup of people. Well, Rob McCoy, so that's all you need to know. <laughs> then we got Charlie Kirk and Kirk Cameron. But look at all the, uh, uh, Dan Erickson that's been on our show a bunch of times. Kirk, uh, Charlie Kirk that's been on our show. David Harris that's been on. So this is just an amazing lineup. Now, when you look at that slide, it's going to broadcast on Sunday at 5 p.m., but it's going to be recorded. You got to get this. It's going to be recorded on Saturday at 10 a.m. So 10:17 on Saturday at 10 a.m. And we we are encouraging you to go out to Jack Hibbs Church and be part of the 2,500 member seats that they have available. Mm-hmm. Kirk asked me today that uh, if you go on to the non-essential. So www.nonessential.live website. You can register there because they kind of want to know how many people are showing up and, and, and help them get the message out. So the website has some great videos, some, some great information. But please uh, come out there and support all these people that are really making a difference in our, in our society. Um, the other thing is... As we get closer to November, we are going to be doing live streams that uh, go into the effect of what's going on with the elections. So make sure that you subscribe to our live stream. Make sure you hit the bell at the top because that's going to alert you because we might be doing some ones that are more on the fly that we need to get that information out there. And then the last thing is... Rob has a Twitter feed. It's at Rob underscore McCoy underscore where we're going to be getting uh, information through that channel, which also uh, you could uh, uh, d- give some feedback on 
people that you want to see and help us secure some guests because we're getting excited about people like you joining us. So look at those resources and we'll go forward with uh, some neat guests coming on. We're excited about some of the people that will be coming on here soon. Yeah, it's going to be a great event. Kirk yeah. was t telling us I, uh, it's a two-hour event uh, at Jack Hibbs' church and I asked, these powerhouse speakers, how are you going to do that in two hours, right? Yeah. He said, everybody gets seven minutes. And so I guess it'll be this, hopefully it's the best seven minutes of their life, right? And they add it all together to have the impact that we really want to have uh, in this election season. Well, back to our guest, Gabriel Nadalis, conservative activist now, and uh, the law author, as I mentioned before, behind the Black Mask my times at time as an Antifa activist. And Gabriel grew up in the Los Angeles area, just to recap those who didn't catch our last edition, and uh, immigrated when he's nine-ish years mm -hmm. old into America with his family, and was influenced by the time he was in junior high to uh, with anti-American sentiment that even started back uh, through... Uh, anti-American propaganda, basically, mm -hmm. in uh, Mexico City through the networks and the, uh, that media machine. And we know that media and its influence, uh, the way that it affects young people, to where uh, then you were also uh, influenced by teachers. And we left off, you were in high school, and you had your um, an event that you, I can't remember the event that you came out and some, you joined a group, you were hiding behind a tree, you were all decked out in black with your mask. So, um, as a recap, the yes. National Socialist Movement yes. went, this is in March of 2011. Okay. And I remember specifically um, going there uh, to try to, you know, do something about it. You know, I already knew about Antifa, so I wanted to show up. And then I remember when this guy, all dressed in black as well, which is the same as me, uh, he asked me if I wanted to go to oppose the Nazis. And I said, yeah. He said, okay, wait for me. I'm going to give a call. Um, I'll call everybody, and we're going to all go together at once. Maybe I waited 10, 20 minutes at most. Um, and this guy, he grabbed a megaphone, and he said, if you really want to do something, then follow me. Then all of a sudden, I started noticing just a, a lot of people dressed in all black as well, just kind of like following him. Maybe about 10, 15, not a terrible amount of people. Um, but we just started walking. Somebody had the Antifa flag with the logo. Um, this nice girl, she gave me a black and red flag, which is to symbolize the anarcho-collectivism, which is basically like anarcho-communism, but a, a little bit of a subsection of that. And I mean, I've... I felt like I was beginning to be part of something bigger than I was. Um, nothing particularly exciting happened that day. I mean, we, we yelled at Nazis. They yelled at us back. The police set up a scrimmage line separating the two groups. That was that. Yeah. But what really changed is that's how I met a lot of my radical friends. Because then they invited me to more events to the anarchist book fairs in Southern California. And from there, I did animal rights protests, uh, even more anti-war things, but a little bit more radical and all that. And became a vegan. And wh what were some well, of the things that began to uh, affect you? Not, not to associate vegans with... No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying, <laughs> when you did the, our other event, you listed this whole thing that you went through this and this and this, and uh, whether it was animal rights activism, that there was just, whether it was everything from the diet to the activism. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's it, definitely was 
it was an ideology. It was a lifestyle. You were kind of part of this community. Yes. Not everybody was vegetarian or vegan. Right. Uh, you know. I understand. Uh, but <laughs> I, thank you, Jay, for straightening me out. I didn't mean that. I just meant that before you said there is a part of an ideology that I was poking at just to yeah. see how how it came about. Yeah, and I mean, going back to specifically to the lifestyle, some people took it very seriously for for um, growing their own tobacco because they didn't want to support Maboro or some of these corporations mm -hmm. to making sure that they um, they didn't eat meat or they made their own clothes as opposed to going to like Walmart or like Target, all these places, you know. It was, um, we really wanted to be as uh, ideologically consistent as we possibly could. Obviously, we acknowledge that we didn't live under communism and sometimes you had to go to the store to buy things because that's basically what happens, you know, we live in the system. But as much as we possibly could, we lived that lifestyle. I was thankful that I always lived with my with my family. You know, I, I was underage, so I was always there. But some of my my friends, they lived in a squatter house. They squatted. You know, they they just kind of found a couch, and that's where they were for several months at a time. <laughs> so you didn't show up at one of these rallies with a Starbucks in your hand? In no, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. It's a, it's a, as anti-establishment as. It could be in its ideology, right? Anything that, that seems to, um, you know, Walmart, you're not going to... As, as much as we possibly could. As much it was, as you could. Uh, right. As much as you could um, from trying to support local mom and pop businesses, which right. I guess is kind of nice, you know? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's kind of nice. But, I mean, some people stole from them, so... <laughs> so you talked about... you. I watched one of your videos. As the joke is that you started yeah. to re read it. Uh, econ book, and that's how you start to break out. But, you know, can you wrap that in? It's like one of the things is like Jeff Bezos represents capitalism, but he's kind of on the left end of the spectrum. So how do those two rectify themselves that you go after, I guess he's capitalistic, but he's, so how does that work? I don't know. Some people just don't understand what made them rich. Like, yeah. you know, um, it's, it's, I, I think it's some, they feel kind of guilty for amassing so much wealth and they think, oh, I wish everybody could do it. And they don't realize that they didn't get rich by going to the government. They got rich by putting it all out there and risking their wealth. And I just don't know how like, you can support so much government regulation and say, like Bill Gates, he says, I could pay more taxes. Well, pay them. Yeah. Like, no one's stopping you. <laughs> But Antifa actually kind of goes after those guys, yeah, too, even though in some ways they're on the same end of the spectrum, right? Yeah, and specifically, the way that a lot of radical movements work is by freezing a target, polarizing it, and then destroying it. This is straight out of Saul Dialinsky's book, Rules for Radicals. Yeah. And specifically, I mentioned in my book again, um, Jeff Bezos the reason you want to target Jeff as opposed to Amazon is because Amazon is a great service. It provides jobs for millions of people. And not only that, so many people out there, they, they know the, the prime shipping. They can get anything from their house. It's, it's just a great service all around. You can buy my book on Amazon. Right. Well, that's really hard to really fight against. So radical leftists, they grab Jeff Bezos and they personify it the issue they make it seem if you hate capitalism and you hate poverty and you hate all these things then it's all jeff bezos's fault right 
and they want to attack him because it's so much easier to attack the evil guy than some corporation that really has no soul, no identity. It's just there. Right. Yeah. And you, you said this is, it's a three-step thing. You identify. You identify it. You, no, the you, person. You freeze it. Freeze it. You polarize it. Okay. And then you destroy it. Right. It's, it's, it's sometimes uh, along the same idea is that you have to have a victim. Mm-hmm. You have to have a perpetrator and you have to have a savior yeah. to be able to have the elements. I need to be the victim and somebody's doing it to me and who's going to be the savior that gets me to go against that person that's yeah, doing it, this bad thing to me. It, it, we live in a society that so many things are so complex. They're not black and white. Right, but not. the thing that moves people is the black and white. The thing that moves people is that guy's, uh, he's responsible for you being poor. Let's go after him. Yeah. That's a very powerful message, even if it is false. Right. So let's back up just a little bit. You go through this. You're in your freshman year of college. Was it? Yeah. And so actually backing up a little bit even okay. further, um, uh, I, I presume you're going to ask me about how I started leaving this kind of movement. You presume correctly. <laughs> yeah. You're so insightful. Yeah. So... It was my senior year of high school when I remember um, being introduced to um, basic economic principles, basically. And I found them incredibly interesting. You know, I, I already had already read a lot of socialism and a lot of like communist like doctrines. But this new idea, I started noticing that it wasn't, at least on paper, what a lot of people on the left said that it was. So I started having questions. I started talking to a lot of my friends. Well, who are my friends? Well, other members of the Antifa movement. Well, as soon as I started asking questions, that I began to see who they really were. Mm-hmm. Uh, for being an anarchist at the time, I, that was the very first time I was called a capitalist pig. Mm-hmm. Just for asking questions. After I realized that just people were just going to be so antagonistic for me asking questions, I started reading more books on the left. Did it push you that direction more? Or? No, no. Well, I was trying to figure out Oh, why, I see. On the left. On you the said, left. I was okay. trying to figure out what... Okay, so these people just clearly don't know what they're talking about. Maybe the authors of people who write these things and will know. But then I started noticing a lot of straw man arguments about capitalism, about what, what the free market truly was. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't all make sense at all. Um, ultimately, at this time, I started college, and I really wanted to understand conservative and libertarian thought. Even though I already had some tendencies towards that, um, for mainly the idea that I didn't like government. <laughs> well... I started a Young Americans for Liberty chapter. And the reason I started a chapter like that was because I knew that conservatives and libertarians were just not present on college campuses. I needed to find them. You started it to find them yes, and to have it's, relationships. It's an incredibly yeah, common thing. How did you thing. make the and jump? That, you're like, you know, you're I wearing think, a black mask. <laughs> and then I'm you're going to start a conservative <laughs> group. On it a wasn't like camp. overnight. At this point, maybe I, that was a maybe months. about several months yeah. like, uh, after I stopped doing okay. my activism. Yeah. But it's an actually a very common story. I mean, go, let me tell you. The first time I gave my speech about Antifa, which... I kind of, they kind of pushed me into it. They told me, like, you have a speech five days from now. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll write something. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so I remember going there, and, and at the Q&A, I gave my message. There was this girl who said she was a liberal, and she said she attended because the liberal club on campus told her that I was going to start spewing a bunch of anti-women propaganda. Hmm. I don't talk about women's issues, like, at all. That's like, I don't really have much to say about it, you know? <laughs> um, but... She told me that the reason she showed up is because she wanted to see if that was true. Mm-hmm. She loved my message and she joined the club. 
I will say though, it was a Turning Point USA club. I mean, and I have this this story time and time again. Another time, I remember um, I was helping another Turning Point USA chapter in uh, Southern California, and there's this girl, very hateful girl, who walked past us and started yelling at us, saying, you're a racist, you're a fascist, all of these hateful things. Then there was a group of three athletes who were kind of walking back. You know, they had a, a basketball with them. They're just kind of chatting, not really paying attention to us. And... This girl looks at them and says, don't listen to them. They're fa- fascists. They're racist. And then th- these people, they were intrigued. They're like, what's going on? They came up to us and he picked up one of the pins and, and asked, I'm like, well, why are you guys fascist? And as soon as he read it, it said big government sucks, which is a turning point tagline. Yeah. Well, before I even could, I could even open my mouth, he was like, nah, man, you guys are cool. I like this. You know? <laughs> the tagline worked. The tagline right? worked. Charlie Kirk has some great marketing tools. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of basically what I did. I really wanted to understand what they were saying. I didn't want to listen to all these, like, uh, strawman arguments or these taglines that they had, I wanted to talk to libertarians, actual libertarians and conservatives to understand them. Yeah. So was it curiosity? It would definitely was curiosity. That's I really I'm wanted about. to know what they were about. But I'll tell you, I didn't become a conservative just by starting a libertarian club. The reason I became a conservative was because I had, I made friends and I realized that these people were not hateful. And ultimately, that kept my mind open that once we started having those conversations about politics, about the free market, about all these different issues, then they became much more easier for me to really grasp. Because when you attack somebody head on, say if I go up to a neo-Nazi and I tell him, I start yelling at him and telling him how he, like, he's a worthless person. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to say things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, like just a really bad person. He's not going to listen to me. Instead, he's going to say, you know what? My friends are right. Like they are like incredibly racist. Uh, like uh, uh, white people are under attack and they're going to be even more deeper. They get themselves deeper into the hole. Same thing with Antifa. If you attack them head on and you start telling them like a bunch of different things, then they're going to kind of like go back to their own um, Go, go to their own corner. Their own echo chamber. Echo chamber, yes. yeah. So that's what, kind of what happened to me. For asking questions, I started thinking, well, I don't know. I don't think that it's that bad. I, I should go talk to them. Yeah. You know that I, I'm going to get the quote wrong from Rob, but people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Mm-hmm. I, the other thing is that I've been trying to learn, and you've said it a couple times already, the best way to win somebody over is ask them questions because that's a way of showing, I care what you think. I want to know what you think. And by asking questions, they have to justify why they think the way they do. So did you find that strategy of asking questions, not only are you feeling your ability to know more, but it also got them to... To, to have to justify why they thought that way. Yes, um, and it's actually, that's the basic of my book. If you can boil it down into something, that is the message that I want people to really understand. To become friends with somebody, even if they have ideas that are really extreme, mm-hmm. to then um, <laughs> basically change their minds. Um, there's a person in my book, he's, um, he's a great guy. He, a lot of people... Yeah. Pence's flies here. <laughs> We're starting uh, small, though. <laughs> um, there's this gentleman. His name is Josh Brown. And he, a lot of people in the pro-life movement um, will know who he is. And he has um, 
the way he convinces people to the pro-life movement is by becoming friends with people who are pro-choice and then talking to them on this foundation of friendship. That's how he changes people's minds. And I talk extensively about this in the last chapter of my book. Mm -hmm. uh, I also bring up Daryl Davis, who is this great gentleman, a Democrat, but he is an African-American gentleman from the South who befriended members of the KKK. And after befriending one, he got them to re renounce the KKK robes. And after a few years, he got over 200 members of the KKK. A black man got 200 members of the KKK to leave by becoming their friend. Wow. And that's basically how you get people away from extremist ideologies, by becoming friends with them right. and then pulling them more towards sanity. Yeah. Right. They're both great motivators, love mm -hmm. and hate. Yeah. Right. And the one uh, and what we see really on the streets is expressed in so much hate. And uh, um, but I agree with you wholeheartedly about that. So you told me that there was a um, was it a teacher or a professor that was at the high school that gave you the economics book that really began to turn you towards this or what what? What are the logs of fuel that kept getting poured on this? You started Turning Point USA. You could have curious conversations. You began to understand and grow. So, yeah, it all kind of started with, uh, again, my economics teacher. I started having questions. Then I started, I started this club to find more conservative students. Um, then it was I, I specifically talk about one of my best friends. His name is Vin, Vinny Sinapi Riddle. He's actually a sheriff now in Los Angeles County. Um, he's doing great. How do you say that last name again? Uh, Vin, uh, Sinapi Riddle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he goes by Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> it's my cousin Vinny. He's it's a Vinny. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, so uh, he's a great guy, but he w he grew up as a libertarian. He was raised in a very political household, and he listened to a lot of uh, a lot of uh, libertarian thinkers. And he introduced me to all of these great people. Uh, he's really the reason that I became a libertarian and eventually a conservative. But I'll be honest with you, I did not expect myself to ever become or to ever continue to be an activist. When I first majored in politics, I thought that I was just gonna work for some policy think tank. Um, there's many out there and I thought I was gonna be doing research. That's kind of what I was gearing myself up to do. But then when I started that libertarian club, I realized that the campus left was not going to let me do anything. Even though I was kind of on their side for most of it, they started showing their true colors. They started trying to shut down our events, prevent us from getting an advisor, and just everything that Antifa was doing, minus the violence, they were doing it. The bias against conservatives and libertarian students and Christian students, for that matter, is institutionalized on America's college campuses. Mm -hmm. And I found that out as a member of the left, having started a libertarian chapter. I mean, I can tell you just story and story after <laughs> they just kept trying to shut us down. One of the funniest and most ridiculous things that, that, that happens is we were doing an activism project to protest the student government. It's really no, of no consequence outside of anything except for that school. I can't even remember what student government did that we didn't like. So we printed a poster of a communist My Little Pony. As ridiculous as that sounds, I found some like communist My Little Pony and I put the student government logo underneath and it said resist at all costs. It's a parody. It's supposed to make people laugh. Well, one of the administrators threatened to sue us 
for using their logo and for, I don't know, all these different things. They were trying to escalate all of their actions to make sure that we were silenced and we didn't have a voice. Mm-hmm. Which is happening. I mean, conservatives that seek to go onto college campuses can be shut down. They can mm-hmm. cancel them. I mean, we're just in a cancel culture because people don't want to be civil in the realm of uh, ideas because if you don't have a good argument, the only way to do, uh, the only way to win is to shout the other person down. Yeah. And I mean, I, my book is about the time that I had uh, as an Antifa activist, you know, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't in the, in the Antifa movement long enough to write a book about everything that I did. I could, right. you know, I, two chapters basically sums up everything that I did. Yeah. I, on a, I'd like to go on tangents. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I actually made a friend who is another Antifa, former Antifa guy. He's about 15 years older than me. He reached out to me and he's writing a book on his experiences and this guy was in it for five years. Mm-hmm. A lot of people cycle out like me, but people who stay five, ten years, those are the people who are diehards. Diehards. And he keeps telling me stories. Of, we keep swapping stories. I'm like, yeah, I, I did this against McDonald's, and you know, I'm telling him, yeah. and he's like, yeah, well, I went to Venezuela, and, I, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so like, dude, <laughs> you get your friend, and you have him on our show. Okay, we'll do it together. It'll be fun. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'll definitely talk to him because he has much more experience in the Antifa movement. My point being. Oh, man, what is my point? (laughs) No, that my book is, I talk about this experience that I had with Antifa and with the left. But the stories that I really talk about is of liberal bias against conservative students. Yes. Because as a conservative activist that I've been, I've been in the the conservative movement for about seven years. Right. And I have seen the left go through painstaking, oh gosh, they have done so much against conservative students all throughout the country. I have had, I've had, to help student after student sue their university for so many things. I helped students at Berkeley sue their school. I helped, uh, I sued my own school, by the way. Like, that's kind of the first lawsuit I was involved in. Um, and what school was that? Citrus College. It's okay. in, um, in Glendora by Route, yeah. Route 66. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, California State University, San Marcos, we sued them. And that one was just an egregious one. Mm-hmm. The university said to a pro-life club, we're not going to give you $500 for a pro-life speakers. We don't do that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? They were giving $300,000 to the LGBT club. Right. Like, and it's ridiculous. And then again, um, uh, my friend Nathan Fatal, who's uh, worked for Leadership Institute, he Mm -hmm. helped them specifically uh, and they won. I mean, Mm -hmm. they took them to court and they made sure that the policies they had in the books were uh, were content neutral. So now if they give money to a liberal club, they have to give it to a conservative club and to everybody. It has to be equal. Um, Can you you go... So Turning Point USA, led by Charlie Kirk, is more out there. Yeah, it's out there. And all the slogans, he's just out yeah, there and, I mean, and fighting point, it. So how does that compare to what you got? You guys are a little bit more behind the scenes. Yes. So can you can you tell us what you're doing now, how you're doing it, and maybe compare and contrast so sure. that they know what you're doing? First, point, first, first is with Leadership Institute. Yes. 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 Leadership your Institute. organization that you are mm-hmm. with, yes. So Turning Point USA is a great organization, and they're out there, and they're definitely fighting the cultural war head on. Mm-hmm. What the Leadership Institute does... Well, as far as our campus programs, mm-hmm. because we do a, a stuff outside of campus, um, 
now my, my job is I'm a student rights advocate for the Leadership Institute, and I help students specifically every time that a, the university is trying to shut them down, shut down their free speech, freedom of assembly. But the regional field coordinator, which is what I was for about four years, is literally just to go to college campuses and help conservative students start organizations like Turning Point USA, like uh, Young Americans for Freedom, like Young Americans for Liberty, mm -hmm. just to make sure that they have, they, they know that they are not alone. Mm -hmm. Because so many students, I, I remember time and time again, I go to a college campus and I start tabling, I start giving materials, uh, you know, and a conservative student will come up and they'll say, you guys are conservative? Like, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> so that's basically what I, what I used to do. Just go on a college campus, start it, and then um, uh, teach the students how to continue growing that movement. Because the, the conservative students are out there. Yeah. They're just afraid to speak out. They are. They're, I mean, they're silenced by the intimidation. Mm -hmm. And if they speak out, just like the girl that was walking by your booth, yeah. right? Just, uh, and she's trying to uh, identify you mm -hmm. and as this... You know, all the names, the slurs that they throw to demonize you without just hearing your story. Yeah. Uh, like the uh, athletes that walked up and just saw the one line, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, oh, gosh, I don't know. There's so many stories. I mean, well, with the time we have left, I, I really want because you've been doing this now uh, with Leadership Institute, helping um, students on campuses. Tell us about the Hayden Williams story. So Hayden Williams, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will know who that is. But he was at UC Berkeley, and he got punched in the face by a left-wing agitator. Um, long story short, it caught. It was a national news story, international news story, to be honest. Like I know of reports in Japan, China, well, Hong Kong specifically, <laughs> not China as a whole, um, and India, and I just everywhere. It, they called it the punch heard around the world, and it caught the attention of President Trump. And Hayden Williams was invited to speak in front of CPAC. And, I mean, you know, as President Trump said, Hayden took a punch for all of us. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that Hayden was working for me at the time. He was my field representative at the Leadership Institute. Um, I sent him to Berkeley that day. And I didn't send him to get, like, a punch. <laughs> How'd that make you feel? <laughs> you know, and a lot of people think that Hayden was enjoying the... The spotlight. Spotlight. And he wasn't. I remember when he was punched and I saw the video. And we were trying to control the message because as soon as I saw the video, I recognized that it was going to be a news story if it got out there. And I was talking to uh, my bosses and also Campus Reform, which is a media arm of the Leadership Institute. We cover a lot of um, liberal bias on college campuses about how to really frame this to make sure that Hayden was anonymous because he didn't want any of that. Unfortunately, somebody put his, Hayden's name out there and just spread like wildfires. Like, oh, we found him. You know, this is, this is who he works for, everything. So we had to change gears. Ultimately, I remember having those conversations and making sure that he got to meet the president and stuff. And um, Hayden is a really, really close friend of mine. But ultimately, he left the movement because he just wants to live a peaceful life. I mean, you know, that's what he's always wanted to. Mm -hmm. But one good thing did come out of that. One good thing. And it was that President Trump decided to take action to protect free speech on college campuses. On March of 2019, he signed an executive order to protect free speech. 
and he invited Hayden. He invited, it's funny because the White House asked us if we had names of people who had been, whose rights had been violated on the college campuses. And I'm like, do you got time? <laughs> like, How we, long a list do you want? We, yeah, like, cause um, myself, just from me, like working together, I had a close to like a hundred names just on my own from California. And because at that time you were overseeing California. I was overseeing California and yes. my, my coworkers, they had long lists, just the same. Eventually we had a list of about 200 people who we figured if they got invited, they'd be able to travel to DC and, you know, president Trump or his administration, I'm sure president Trump doesn't know who I am, yeah. but his administration, they, they saw me and they saw that all the work that I had been doing for the past, like six years at that point, And they also invited me to go. And let me tell you, it was quite an honor. I never thought as an Antifa activist, I would ever be invited to the White House to see President Trump, who is the, basically the enemy of Antifa today. You know? So what, a, I mean, really a story, we were talking, um, I think it was in our last sec- session about the American dream. That the American dream is not about uh, mansions, it's not about yachts, it's about liberty to be able to pursue uh, your own destiny with upward mobility. If you get up and work hard and mm-hmm. you do it every day for a long time, usually something good's going to happen. At the least, you're going to have a roof over your head with good food and uh, hopefully your family's enjoying life, right? Yeah. And so your story, I know that um, to me, I'm just, I'm just sitting, I, I'm always amazed by people's stories though, because I think it's just as unique as people's DNA. I just love it. <laughs> and you're born in Mexico City. You immigrate. So, I mean, you're, um, you're chill. I see you're married, mm-hmm. right? Do you have children yet? No, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. <laughs> uh, waiting a little bit. Uh, my wife would love children, but she wants to finish her, uh, her degree first. Her degree. Yeah. No, no pressure at home. I know if you're watching this, <laughs> no pressure. But when the little bambinos come, um, they're going to be first generation for you anyway, yeah. born in America, mm-hmm. and that your life is the American dream. It is. Here you are, uh, <laughs> when you were standing in the White House, did you just want to pinch yourself, right, and say, what, how did I get here, right? Yeah, and you know, and as timing would have it, um, my wife and I, we've been married for f- almost four years now, but at the, at the time I remember that I, I wanted to take her to Mexico cause she, you know, she's, she's also Mexican, but she was born in America. Okay. Uh, she knows Acapulco, but she doesn't know Mexico city that well. Mm-hmm. And I told her, let's go to Mexico, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we planned the trip months and months before the Hayden thing happened. We bought our tickets, everything. And I was at the white house one day and the next day we went to Mexico <laughs> And it was to kind Mexico of like, City. yeah, and it was like kind of like a thing, like uh, to see all like my family and everybody, like uh, my, my whole extended family, they told me like, oh, you were with President Trump. I was like, yeah, let me show you, <laughs> like show you pictures. Yeah, and, but, <laughs> but with the anti-American sentiment that you see on Telemundo's stuff, is that kind of swept away? Because I mean, it's really, it, th- this is our family and you were there yeah. and, and uh, yeah, how you proud know, they were of you. Uh, I mean, my I mean, you know, like, obviously, as Mexicans, they want to see Mexico, like, better than America or whatever. And I remember one of my uncles, he was criticizing America for, and also the pres- Mexican president during the Mexican-American War for, like, losing all the territory and all these things. Like, one day we'll get it back, you know, and stuff. But at the end of the day, um, even though we have differences and I want to see Mex- America succeed and they want to see America succeed over America, in the end of the day, we're family. 
-hmm. And I think that's the beautiful thing about friendship and bondships and like family that even if you have disagreements with people, you can still sit down at a table and have dinner with them and have a good time and enjoy each other's company. Yes. Because that's the message of my book. And I, I can't stress that enough. Yeah. My book is a political book to expose Antifa and to expose the radical left on college campuses. But the message of the book mm -hmm. is to remind people that we can still have that. Yes. We can still have a family. We can still be friends with people that we disagree with. We can have civil... Under, I mean, we can agree to disagree and do it in a civil manner mm -hmm. and uh, love one another and have relationships. And that's what we see the, the fabric of America being torn apart because that, that civility in the, in the, are, the public arena, mm -hmm. uh, even in the streets, is, is gone right now. And so I know that people long for that. You were mentioning that um, Hayden Williams, he, he wanted to just step into a peaceful life. And, and sometimes when you're out there, because even though that's the message of your book, as long as you stay in this arena, it is one uh, fraught with conflict. It is. Right? And hate. It is. Not, not from you, but from, from opposition and people that would it want is, to. It is, because politics is very polarizing. Yeah. I, I absolutely hate politics. Yeah. I wanted to go into study policy. Like, <laughs> I wanted to study like, people and kind of like, give numbers and statistics. And somehow I got like, <laughs> like, tossed in the middle of this stuff. You know, uh, interestingly enough, that Hayden Williams story at Berkeley, that's not the first time he was attacked. Really? That was like the fourth time. But and the one time it got on video. Yeah. The one time I got a video, specifically in my in, in the book, again, I talk about how Hayden and I were both at UCLA and we both got attacked. I mean, this is happening. So It's probably not happening right now because of COVID, but let's wait for campuses to go back on in session. Yeah. We're going to start seeing violence on college campuses, and that's going to start uh, <laughs> coming out into the American streets as we've been seeing mm -hmm. for the last several months now. Well, I think that's really, uh, in a sense, that's a backhanded blessing that they're not on campuses because it's going to go from the streets to the campuses because the um, uh, the virus of this activism that is to cancel uh, and mm -hmm. to uh, basically shut the mouth. I was just fascinated. You know, it's an anti-fascist movement, which Antifa is short for anti-fascism, mm -hmm. right? And the thing is that I don't think people understand. You go, well, we don't have a dictator like Hitler because this is the, this is the, but he's likened to him, Trump. Mm -hmm. But with uh, the three branches of government and all those things, this is what I was trying to get at. And maybe you could help me understand. It's that if you disagree with my message, because the people in Nazi Germany did not stand up and voice their opinions, it's thought by many that I need to just shut you up before you can even start talking if you have an opposing view to me. Yeah, and I mean, that's the basis of the Antifa argument, that they say that, yes. oh, it, it's, it's in a crude analogy is, would you kill baby Hitler? And at the time is going, hindsight is 2020. Yes. Obviously, we would love to stop Hitler, but we have absolutely no evidence that like the next person they're trying to shut down is like they're going to be that hateful. And in fact, we have a lot of evidence that they're not. They're actually being very peaceful. Yes. And the thing is, Antifa believes in this fairy tale that with enough punches and organized attacks, they can, they can stop fascism. 
But every time they cancel a person, they cancel a speaker, they're not going away. Yeah. You, when you cut off a fool's tongue, he becomes a martyr. Mm-hmm. And whenever you shut down a person who is very hateful, all of a sudden he can tell his friends, look, we need more, more of us so we can fight back against this threat. And all of a sudden you have these groups growing and then in opposition and people will say, well, we need more of us. Yeah. So let's go shut them down. And again and again, back and forth until you start having these uh, small attacks of shutting down uh, speakers turn into riots mm-hmm. and these riots turn into people being killed on the streets that we've been seeing in Portland yes. and some well, of the Well, and the amazing thing is the United States being so unique that we are governed by the people. The people have the mm-hmm. power and we have the three, like you pointed out, the three branches of government mm-hmm. that are a check and balance system. So there's never a possibility that you can get to a fascist government here. So you're fighting something that's never possible of happening. Yeah. Well, the closest you can get to it is if you have a president and then a supermajority in Congress, right? And then a supportive government uh, um, judicial branch. And for all that to line up among humans of such diversity is... Fun fact, it happened in the 1900s. Yeah. This is getting into like a little bit historical yeah, thing, yeah, but okay. FDR kind of had that. <laughs> but they <laughs> used to have the That's people. What I'm saying. Yeah. Those, all those things have to line up, Yeah, right? They do have to line up. And so it's not just one person is what mm-hmm. I mean. I mean, it has to be a avalanche of of those things coming together and FDR did have that and, yeah, did. Uh, and that's a true fact. Hey, we're out of time. We've had lots of fun <laughs> with Gabriel and uh, Gabriel, when we were coming on the set, you guys, he said, I really don't have that much to say. I don't know if it's going to be that long. And I said, <laughs> we, we've got lots. <laughs> we we want to hear, we want to hear what you have to say. And so uh, what a blessing. Thank you very much. Gabriel. I appreciate it very Once much. again, we hold up your book. Hey, Check this out. You can pick up Gabriel's book on Amazon, Behind the Black Mask, My Time as an Antifa Activist. And uh, the message is his time, his uh, transition to be a conservative, but really just to have friendship and dialogue and peaceful interaction with people with different ideas that it's possible Mm -hmm. to uh, win their hearts and uh, through that process to have influence in our culture. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. uh, Well, until next time, be praying for Pastor Rob and Charlie. They're on the road uh, doing what we're doing here, but in a lot, uh, uh, many different venues. And also remember this Saturday, the non-essential event at Pastor Jack Hibbs Fellowship in Chino Hills with a stellar lineup of conservative speakers that they're going to film on Saturday and air on Sunday. Going to be a great time. So uh, I'm going to pray for us and Dave's going to give us the blessing. So would you join us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for Gabriel. Lord, we pray for his life, that your Holy Spirit would fall upon him and his precious wife, that you would encourage them and strengthen them as you lead and direct them. Thank you for his story, and we just pray that you would continue to bless his life and his story. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are coming up on 200 episodes, and Number 624 through 26 has been the mainstay. And we always say, and Rob reminds you to take this to heart because this is a tradition that's going to stay with us forever and it really resonates. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. And we look forward to seeing you soon. And I think hopefully Rob will be back to, to take the helm again. We're excited uh, as he's busy, he can still come and feed us with his knowledge and, and uh, what he has to share with us. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night.